For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're going to be in John chapter 5, going to cover a lot of ground, hopefully in a very short period of time, looking at three different ways, three different people on how they respond to Christ. The context here, what we've been talking about the most recently is this issue of Jesus is totally not what people expect. You know, there were a lot of people at this time who were studying their Old Testament, who had a sense of what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be a descendant of Abraham. A good deal of them were expecting the Messiah to show sometime in this time period because they had studied the Old Testament prophecies and they had an idea in their head of what God would be like. When he showed up, he would would be a Pharisee. He would be uh, dedicated to the traditions of the elders. He would be uh, a clean liver. He would be righteous. He would be uh, liberating, establishing and and going against the Romans and establishing uh, a a thousand-year reign of God here on earth. And so when Jesus gets on the scene and he starts mixing things up uh, and he starts cutting against religious tradition, he's not contradicting the Old Testament, but he's explaining it in a way that didn't include the layer of interpretation of the elders and the traditions of the Jewish people that have been tacked on by the rabbis. And he begins cutting against those things and talking about things and leveling the playing field like we saw with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and a Samaritan woman uh, who was living an immoral lifestyle and saying, you both need exactly the same thing. And it's not better behavior. It's what you believe that really needs to change. And so people are becoming divided as they understand and as the readers, as the first century readers would have been reading John to figure out, you know, what does it mean that Jesus was the Messiah? There's just a lot of things here that would have been very shocking. And yet the fact that he does these inexplicable miracles that only God could do, like turning water into wine or healing people, accompanied with these teachings that don't agree with what the Pharisees have told them, with the the religion in which many of these people were raised, it creates that tension point. How do you explain that? How does he do these things, yet disagree with the people that we've been told are the most spiritual people there are? And so as he continues on this journey to set the record straight and to give them an accurate picture of who God is, we come to the end of John 4, He's just come up through Samaria. He spent a few days there, and many Samaritans have come to Christ. Remember, he was on his way back up to Capernaum. So he arrives there in John 4, 46, and said he came to Cana of Galilee, where he had made water into wine. So he's coming back to where he'd done this miracle, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we see you know, a few details here. We're told this is a royal official. So it's probably not Roman, probably someone that was a part of the Herodian court or um, a part of the, the system that they had where there was still sort of this cult, culturally Jewish um, authority there. We're not really clear who he is. 
But his son is deathly ill, and he's in Capernaum, which is about a 12-hour walk away. And he has apparently heard that Jesus is doing some incredible things. And he goes and he says, sir, please, please go with me. You need to come and see my son. We're desperate. We've tried everything. He's on death's doorstep. Come help my son. He's at the point of death. And Jesus in verse 48 says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And, you know, we could, we could write a, a book about the theme that we're seeing here over and over again, with, which is Jesus saying weird things. You know, you look at that and you're like, it's, it's, it's jilting. It's, it's, how is this? Why is he responding in this way? But we have to remember that Jesus' perspective is God's perspective. That what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, listen, I get that that's a problem. But what do you need more? What does your son need more? Does he need physical life or eternal life? That the issue of your son's health is meaningful, but there is something that is actually far more meaningful than that, which is what does he believe? What do you believe? And what is it going to take for you people to understand that the eternal life that God is offering you is actually way more valuable, way more poignant, way more necessary than this issue? Now, agree, it seems like maybe it's not the best point time for Jesus to make that point, but we have to see this from God's perspective. From God's perspective, physical death is not meaningless, but it's nothing compared to spiritual death. And so he is right. He's God. And he's looking at this and he's saying, what you need is to understand who God is and have hope that you can spend eternity with your son in the future. That's far more important. That's a far more important question that you're not asking. And in verse 49, the royal official says to him, Sir, please come down before my child dies. I am desperate. I don't know what else to do. I'm not coming to you looking for proof. I'm coming to you in a desperate hour as a father who loves his son and and has no idea what else I can do. I was with him I heard you had come back. Maybe he had heard about the miracle at the wedding of Canaan. That was sort of done on the down low, though. Jesus hasn't done a ton of miracles at this point. Maybe he heard about how he cleansed the temple, and he just knew this is a man of God, and you know, what do we do? What do we all naturally do in our most desperate hours? We cling, and we, you know, the, the last refuge of a scoundrel, we pray, we call out to God, I'll do everything different, and my whole life will be different if you'll just save me from this terrible circumstance. I don't know how many times I did that as a non-believer. You know, I, I remember distinctly Multiple times, you know, nearly getting in a car wreck and being like, oh, God, thank you. Or facing something and saying, God, get me out of this. Whereas under normal circumstances, I wouldn't have even 
necessarily granted that God was real, except in an emergency. There's something about us that we, we, we are geared. That, you know, there, there, if there must be something bigger than ourselves. And, you know, circumstances have a way of stripping back that fierce independence. We shake our fists at God until things really start to go bad. And then we, then we start opening up. Well, maybe, you know, if you do this, if you, if you fix my problem, God, maybe I'll follow you at that point. And Jesus simply just says to him in verse 50, he says, go home, your son lives. Now, I don't know about you, but as a father, I think, you know, I put myself in this man's shoes and I, I think that would have put him in a little bit of a difficult circumstance. It's not like he can call, hey, is he better? Right? It's not like he can, you know, send a postcard. I mean, he's going to have to walk all the way home through the night before he finds out whether Jesus has done anything or not. And so the thoughts that would be going through your head in that moment it would be much more comforting, wouldn't it? To know that Jesus, let's go, we'll walk together. Come on, I want you to be there. But then to just believe, you know, puts him in a very difficult situation. Is Jesus a fake? I mean, it would have been better in some ways if Jesus wasn't going to heal him and couldn't heal him, that he would just say, I can't help you, I'm sorry. But he doesn't do that. He says, I have granted your request. I have healed your son. Go home and see. So he's not brushing him off. What he's doing is, is, is making him a promise that's going to require him. The only way to know is going to be to go home and find out. And then it will be too late to, track, to come back and track Jesus down again. Will he do that? says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and started off. I find that to be a quite remarkable act of faith right there. Thinking about if I put myself in his shoes, Jesus said, go home, he's well. And he said, all right, I will. Maybe he saw something in who Jesus was. I mean, you know, these are not comprehensive accounts maybe there was more to the conversation than what was happening there but whatever it was there was something about Jesus saying go home your son is well that caused this man to say that's good enough for me we read in 51 as he was going down to Capernaum his slaves met him on the way back and saying his son was living so he inquired of them the hour when, the sand, when the, the, he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the man knew that it was an at, at an hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed he and his whole household. So this is interesting too. He's glad to hear the news. But the spiritual question has now been elevated in his mind, hasn't it? You might just be like, he's alive, he's, he's healthy, he recovered, whatever it was, the fever broke, whatever. Just be like, oh, praise God, let's go. But you can also see that he's genuinely wrestling. He's like, just by the way, at what point did he start to get better? He's honestly now that he has what he was hoping for, also really contemplating the challenge that Jesus had given him. 
What about the spiritual component of this? And it turns out that it happened just as Jesus had promised that the very hour Jesus said, go, your son will live. That is the hour in which the son recovered. And so he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just measure the power of God and the ability of God to come through with his promises. Then he comes home and he tells everybody he knows what's going on in a way that is compelling and that everyone around him, his whole family, come to believe in Jesus Christ. He sums up, John sums this up in 54 and says this again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he came out of Judea into Galilee. The first one being the wedding at Cana with turning water into wine. So who is this official? We said we were going to look at three different responses. What do we see here? He was a person in desperate need. You know, a lot of people come to faith in the midst of desperate need. And I think there's a part of us that says, eh, you know, it's so much better to be intellectually convinced and to travel this path. And some of us, you know, before we were Christians would even come to that and say, I can't come to God now when things calm down and I get out of this. That's sort of the opposite response of what I was talking about earlier, right? I don't want to just be somebody who just desperately cries out. I want to be somebody who's convinced. But a lot of times it's our desperate need that does show us how helpless we are, how hopeless life is without real spiritual answers to the deeper questions of who am I and do I matter and why am I here and what am I supposed to do? In fact, a lot, quite a lot of the bad circumstances and the desperate circumstances we get into is we've answered those questions with the wrong things. We've become brokenhearted because we put all of our faith in a relationship or in a job, or a career, or success, or power, or whatever it is, we're all trying to find significance, and it's our our missteps in the search for that significance that often leave us broken and desperate. And so this man is facing one of the most horrible things that you could imagine, the, the potential death of a child. But that doesn't make his faith any less real, the response and the reaction of how God moved in his life, any less powerful. He sought out Jesus' help, and there was a persistence to him. When Jesus said, look, you guys just want signs, but what do you believe? He wasn't like, really? We're going to get into that? My son is dying. He persevered in his request of God, and then he put his confidence in him to the point that he was willing to act. It's not just mental ascent. It's not just, well, I tried, and if Jesus is real, my son will be well. But he put it into action in a way that would have been very difficult. It's also interesting to look at him because it's clear that even though he believed and even though he had acted on those beliefs, he still was looking for evidence. He still wanted reason to play a part in what he believed. He wants to know if what it is that he is now believing actually correlates with truth. It's not blind faith. It's continuing to learn and ask and say, you know, is there a correlation between when my son got better and when Jesus told me he would be well? He wanted to be sure that he was believing the right things. 
that his faith correlated with reality, and once he became, became convinced, then he really boldly, obviously, and clearly began to share what he believed because his experience was one that other people who were in need, other people who didn't have the answers to those questions could learn from and benefit from, not only because they might have their own experience with God, but because he was able to explain to them. These were people, his, his loved ones, his household. This would have been, he would have been somebody that they respected, and for him to explain how God had moved in his life opened the door for God to move in their lives as well. Then we get to John chapter 5, and we get our second example. 5, 1 through 4. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, in these lay a multitude of, those porter, uh, a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease which, with which they were afflicted. This sounds a little strange. It sounds a little bit, you know, like a parable or, or a, um, a legend, you know where they're just all these sick people waiting for the pool to burp. No, oh, it's an angel, and the first one and gets healed. And it sounds like a kind of a strange thing for God to set up, doesn't it? It's a, a musical chairs of healing, you know? Uh, what we see here is there's yet another festival. So he's been up north in Capernaum in Galilee. There's another reason to go down to Jerusalem. So he heads down there. We're not told specifically what the festival is. And this pool has been a subject of some curiosity over the years. You can go back, you know, 150 years, and this was used often as, the, as an example of, you know, how John could not have possibly have been a first-hand account, that it was written later because there is no pool of Bethesda. We know where Jerusalem is. There's no archaeological evidence of Bethesda whatsoever. This would have been something, you know, we have very specific instructions. It's by the Sheep Gate. No pool there, so therefore, you know, John, John would have known there wasn't a pool there if he had actually been John, Jesus' disciple, so the gospel was written much later. And then they dug, and they found a pool. And it's there. That's a picture that I took on a trip to Israel of the pool of Bethesda. It was just deep. There had been a lot of rubble because Jerusalem had been destroyed a few times between when we were reading about it in Jesus' day and the modern era. And now everybody has to admit, oh, yeah, there is a pool there. And guess what? It has five porticos. And so it's a, just an example of how when we hear archaeology saying this or that, or this is impossible and the Bible's not real, um, there have been quite a few times where that's happened. And it's turned out as archaeology has done more digging, they've found that the Bible has these incredibly accurate depictions of history. The other thing I want to call your attention to is in your Bibles, as you look at them, that whole section about the pool and the angel stirring up and bubbling, it might be bracketed, it might be italicized, and there's a reason that they do that, which is this particular part of the text is, cannot be found in the earliest manuscripts that we have of John. And what that means is, is that this was likely added in later, probably as just a description 
of what people at that time believed. So when you go back to the earliest manuscripts, it doesn't have this because why? Well, John would have assumed everybody in his audience knew what the Pool of Bethesda was all about and why people went there and why there were sick people there. And then someone later, a copyist, sort of explained what the Pool of Bethesda is, and then it makes it seem like it's claiming that this is, what, this is how God works. And I think there's good evidence for saying, mm, I don't think that, you know, there was a magic pool with an angel. It's not that I don't believe in miracles, and it's not that I don't believe that God could do something like that. It's that the evidence actually bears out in this particular instance that this is not what John wrote. But it is describing something that would have been explaining why all these people were hanging out by this pool, whether it was true or not, they were there. And Jesus went there. And we read in verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there among all the other people who were in pain or sick or disabled in some way, He knew that he'd already been there for a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. This is a race. And when the bubbles come up, when the water is stirred, no one will take me and someone always gets in first. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, forget the pool. Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. So again, Jesus says something weird. It's pretty weird to go up to a very ill person, and it's it's very clear that he's been ill. He's by a pool of a big crowd of people waiting and hoping to be healed, and to walk up and just say, hey, do you wish you could get better? Seems pretty bizarre. Only surpassed by, I think, the bizarre response of the man, which is, he doesn't say yes, right? He doesn't say yes. Okay, will, you, will you help me get into the pool? I just need a dude to be quick, fast, right? Just kick me over the lip like as soon as it happens and, and we'll see what happens. He's, his answer, do you want to be healed? His answer is, well, this, there's this circumstance and there's that and there's all these reasons and, you know, I just keep coming here, but it's hopeless, My situation is hopeless because no one cares about me. No one's concerned about me. And um, that's my lot. That's what my life is about, is sitting by this pool, not getting healed. So Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, began to walk. And we're told now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. That's the little mat he was lying on. We think about like giant weird pallets. No, no, this was just a small little thing. He says, they see him carrying his mat. And he says, it's not my fault. The guy who made me well, who healed me, was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And so we see, you know, the Pharisees are looking on And whether they knew that this man had been healed or not, they just saw someone carrying a mat. And their interpretation of the law, remember, the law of Moses said don't work on the Sabbath, right? But it's a great way to get into how interpretation works. Well, what is work? 
And that's, that's the kind of thing that the rabbis would do is they would get into this whole thing of, well, is it work, you know, to get out of bed? Is that work? And they would, like, they would have a debate, you know, and they would talk about all these different things and try to break it down because it was so important to follow the rules and to be religious. And there's this competition element to it too, where it's like, oh, really, you get up and you cook breakfast on the Sabbath? We don't even do that. We starve. That's how zealous we are. The law of God. And you're like, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not do that either anymore. And these, these rules and these traditions that are, all the Bible says is it's a day of rest. It's a day for the Lord. It's an act of faith to not go out into your field and plow that day, but to be with your family and to be with God. That's the biblical explanation of the Sabbath. But it gets turned into this thing, this incredibly uh, oppressive thing where picking up the mat that you were lying on and walking home with it would be considered work to the point where someone might pull you aside and rebuke you for not following the law of Moses. And he's like, but I just, I've been sick for 30 years and I just got healed. And the man who God used to heal me told me to do this. And their response is not, where is this man who is healing people? We want to meet him. They're like, where is this man who told you to pick up your beer pallet and walk? They completely miss the incredible thing that God is doing because they're so focused on the religious rules that they believe are the better part. And so they asked him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man doesn't even know. He was healed. He didn't know who Jesus was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And I find that bizarre too. Don't you think if someone walked up to you and said, do you want to be well? And you're like, eh, well, yeah, I got problems. And they're like, get up and go home. And then you could. Do you think you might say, who are you? That my question might occur at some point. Who are you? What is, how were you able to do this? Uh, thank you. You know, there's a lot of things that, I, that pop into mind that evidently didn't occur to this man on this day. He doesn't even know. He said, just the guy who healed me, he just kind of disappeared into the crowd. So the man by the pool has contrasted to the royal official. There's no discernible faith here. He doesn't even ask Jesus to be healed. He doesn't even say, you know, you could heal me if you want to, or would you heal me? Can you heal me? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he says, these are all the reasons why I can't be healed. He doesn't know anything about who Jesus is. He seems very cynical, very defeated. You know, he receives this incredible gift from God. And he's not that concerned. He doesn't seem to, it hasn't sparked his interest, right? I mean, he's just participated not just been the beneficiary of, but the eyewitness, he just saw a supernatural, if anyone knew how supernatural this was, it was this man. His body didn't work. And then suddenly it worked. Like any onlooker could be like, well, this is a setup. This guy could actually wasn't sick, blah, blah, blah. But this guy knew that for 40 years, he had been very ill, and he met Jesus Christ, and in the blink of an eye, he had been made 100% well. What does he do with this incredible knowledge? You just met somebody who can supernaturally change nature, 
And he seems to have zero appreciation for the fact that God has done this. Or why? Or how? And then he throws Jesus under the bus. We read in 14 that Jesus later found him in the temple and said, behold, look, you're well. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. He seems to be saying, look, dude, there's something very wrong with your heart. There's something very wrong the way that you're, you're viewing this situation. You know, Jesus apparently understands that he's being, been questioned, and now the Pharisees are coming to get him, trying to find him. And he's like, what is wrong with the way that you're viewing this? There's a, again, he's saying the spiritual aspect of this is far more important, isn't it? You need to understand that there are worse things than being sick for 30 years. There's worse things than physical death. There's not being right with God. And that, he gives him a warning. He says, get your heart right with God. Because there's way worse things that can happen than being sick for 30 years. And you need to change your perspective. And the next thing we read, the man went away from Jesus right at that moment and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. We're surprised by that, aren't we? It's just like, it's just so shocking. You know who's not surprised is God. Remember what we read a few weeks ago, this interesting thing in John 2, 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what is in man. I mean, that's such an important description that God understands how twisted and selfish, rebellious, ungrateful, all of those things that, you know, are in us. God fully understands that, but what does he do? He loves us and he he comes after us anyway. So this man by the pool is one of these people where it's just, there's no amount of evidence. I mean, if this doesn't convince you that God is real, I don't know what would. To me, this would be more convincing than seeing the parting of the Red Sea. This is something internally with you and your body that only you would really know the difference from what You were before Jesus said, pick up your pallet and walk, and what you were after. And if you're not convinced by that, I think it's safe to say that no gift is sufficient. No good thing, no power, nothing that you can do and nothing that God can do and nothing that you can see is sufficient for you to open your heart to God. And there are people who exist in this state who, you know, they only care about themselves. What is important to this man? It's not getting in trouble with the Pharisees. That's far more important to him than what God was doing in his life. The opinions of others were weighing far more heavily on him than the eternal reality of what God was doing. Oh, I guess a lot of us do do that, don't we? 
I certainly do. When we start to think about, well, I don't want to get too carried away. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be the Jesus freak in the office. Uh, I don't want people to start, you know, our faith deserves this place in our life. And, you know, but we don't want to get too crazy. And we certainly don't want people looking down at us because of our, our religious beliefs. And we see what that's, that's what's happening here with this man. Is there social pressure being brought to bear for him to shut his mouth and stop carrying his pallet around? And he just crumbles under that. Even though God has done these amazing things. God, on the other hand, still shows up. Still heals him, knowing how he'll respond. Still warns him and tries to teach him. He gives him this evidence of the reality of who he is. He blesses him with health, something that he hasn't known for 30 years. And he also tries to change his mind, doesn't he? Let me persuade you. Let me explain to you. This is not This is not the whole picture that you're seeing here. The spiritual aspect of this matters. And we see this again and again and again with God and with us. Paul would write in Romans 5, 8 through 10, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were denying God and living for self and hurting people and shaking our fist at him, Christ died for us. Much more than now, having been justified by his blood, having been forgiven by Jesus' death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. While we were angrily railing, against the idea of a higher power, of someone having authority to tell me how to live my life. And trying to set ourselves up to be our own God and to worship our own way and to decide right and wrong for ourselves. God came in the person of Jesus Christ to show us how wrong we were. And he didn't come to squish us like bugs. He came to die for us so that he could take the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God, that we deserve because we are wicked. He could take it upon himself so that we could have a choice. The theme that we've been talking about for weeks now is that Jesus shows us what God is really like. We think God wants to squish us, but he wants to love us. We think that he wants to control us, but he wants to bring us freedom. And the reality is, is the more that you begin to actually see, actually understand who God is, and as you study him and you understand him and you you read throughout the Bible to just know and understand what God is like, the more that you see him, you see the reality of the goodness, of the love, of the compassion, the unconditional love, and the righteousness of God. And as you see that, you also see yourself more accurately and clearly because that's the standard that we are supposed to be compared to. And drawing near to God, I think a big part of why we hate to draw near to God is because it shows us how weak we are, how desperate we are, how twisted we are. 
But we have to see that. We have to own that. We have to know that we need a Savior. We have to know that we are not God. And so, the, the reality of, of drawing near to God is coming into touch, coming into contact with the reality of your own frailty and wickedness. Which leads us to the third example that we see, which is the Pharisees. They're the third option here. What are they doing? They're ignoring the evidence, just like the man who was ill. They completely just don't even seem to care about the fact that this guy was healed. The fact that he's carrying his mat, that he's violating their traditions and their man-made rules is what this entire thing is about. Because they want, they are expecting, they believe to their core that if the Messiah shows up, he's going to be just like us, but just more like us than we are, right? He's going to just, he was a person who would never carry his mattress on the Sabbath. That proves right there. That's greater evidence. That has to be greater evidence to him that he is not the, them, that he is not the Messiah than the fact that someone was healed. The mattress trumps the healing. And they're thinking about who this is, and that shows us how easy it is for us to manipulate and twist who we think God is into this picture, into this image of what we want him to be. Because if the key here is love, love is hard. I don't mean just being nice to someone on the elevator. I mean, considering the needs of others as being more important than yourself. Try that one on. See how long it lasts. But you know what's easy? Not carrying your mat on the Sabbath. That I can do. That is totally within my control. It's inconvenient but I can do it. And so we take those things, the things that we feel like we can do, and we make those the most important things. And we take the things that we can't do without God's help, and we make those the least important things. And the reality is, is we were made to do the most important things, to do and engage in love, but we cannot do them without God. And we were never meant to do them without God. And at the heart of that religious, pharisaical thinking is exactly this. Let's move God out, yet appear to be godly. Let's care very little for hurting people. Let's not rejoice that a man who had been laying by the pool for 30 years and no one would help him now as well. And let's instead focus on who is it that told you to carry your mat. Let's worry more about how things look than what's really going on in the heart. And that is the, the core of the battle that we're seeing here, isn't it? All of Jesus' weird things, all the weird things that he said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. The weird things that he said to the woman at the well, I would give you a spring that would spring up with inside of you, providing you with eternal life. Saying to the man, whose son was sick, saying to him, why do you insist on seeing a sign? What about what you believe? And even saying to the man by the pool of Bethesda, do you want to be well? When you put that through the grid of understanding, 
that spiritual things are far more important than physical things. Because spiritual things go on for eternity and all of our bodies will die. But your spirit will live on. And it will live on in communion and harmony with God because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Or it will live on in eternal separation from God because of our insistence of being our own God. And Jesus is again and again bringing people back to this. This is the thing that you need to know about you. Who are you? What do you believe about eternity? That is what matters. And so, we live a life and we live in a fallen world and there's desperate need all the time. There are horrible things happening all around us and to us. And we're constantly in a situation where we're wrestling with you know, the circumstances of our lives and the pain that we're feeling, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological. We've all got wounds. And to live and to continue to live in this world is to accumulate more wounds. And the question that Jesus keeps asking again and again is do you understand that there are weightier things than your circumstances? And there are worse things that can happen to you than physical disaster, even death of a child or 30 years of suffering and illness with no cure. Pale in comparison with the importance of spiritual things. And these Things that we go through, whether it's illness or death of a loved one or being abused or being rejected or, or being disappointed or all the things that we go through, they all have an effect on us and they, they drive us in one direction or another. In one direction, they cause us to seek answers. Is this really how things are supposed to be? Is this really what my life is supposed to be? Am I doing this right our bad circumstances can, can, can put us and connect us. It's like a veil is lifted and we see briefly while we're suffering the reality of our need because it's always there. We just see it when we're in pain and then lower it back down and climb back up on the throne and say, I, I got this. Or, We spiral downward, shaking our fists and blaming others, especially God, but mom and dad and uh, our boss and our coworkers and our neighbors, whoever it is that we can blame, as long as we don't have responsibility ourselves and we turn inward and we become bitter and we become cynical and we look out at the world and we say this world sucks And I don't want any part of it, and people are nothing but pain. And I don't want any part of it. And this whole thing and all the pain in my life is the responsibility of the people around me. It was not me. I am a victim. And we just go lower and lower into that place of self-protection. I think we're all a little like the official and like by the man by the pool. There's, we move back and forth, don't we? I'm sure you can remember times in your lives where there were things going on and you were like, is this God moving in my life? Times where you cried out to God in the middle of suffering and, and, and felt like he didn't answer. 
And I'm sure that you also are aware that there are times in your life where you've looked at your circumstances and you've said, if this is what it's like, God cannot be good. And I do not accept that this is my fault. It's perfectly human to wrestle with these two options. These are the only really two options for people that live in a broken world like ours. That does not function the way that God designed it to, but is deeply, it's as broken as we ourselves are. And it is why choice matters so much. Because this is where you come to the fork in the road over and over and over again. Will you choose to let the pain of your circumstances reveal your need and draw you closer to God? Or you will, re- will you refuse to accept that you have any responsibility for the terrible things that are going on in your life and curl up into a ball and create a shell that no one and nothing, even God, will penetrate? And then secretly and bitterly wonder why you're so alone. That is so human. And it's right here. I mean, I'm speaking from experience. How many times did I hear the gospel? How many times did God move and show me something and move somebody in my life? I I must have heard the gospel a hundred times and ignored it. But God just kept coming. He just kept sending people. And circumstances came and circumstances went. I had pain. I, I went through hardship. But I was going to be strong. I was going to live my life and be, you know, somebody who could take it. And the reality for me was at one point it just became, it just became not desperate circumstances, but just that sense of, you know, at 18 years old, I had already tried all these different ways to make my life make sense and have meaning and had been disappointed in every one of them knew that I was not a perfect person and that I had flaws and that I had hurt people. And then understood that God was saying, you don't have to change. You don't have to become a good person. You just have to become my person. You just have to let go and admit that you need help from me. Accept my gift of forgiveness. And then we'll, we'll start working on this other stuff. But that comes first. And for some reason, at that point, the, the road forked and I made that decision and it was the best decision that I ever made. And this room is filled with people who all came in different ways to that same point of tension in their lives, that same forked road, and that one time they made the right move And we've all made many wrong moves since then, but all of those wrong moves are different because all of those wrong moves are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have the hope and the the confidence of eternal life. No matter how bad we continue to screw things up here, eternity is going to be awesome. And that's what we want for you. 
We want for you to have that kind of confidence. And that kind of confidence begins with a simple choice. Will you open your heart, open your eyes to the evidence? Will you stop blaming the world and God for the things that have gone wrong? Yes, you, it has been, you have been treated unjustly. There is no argument against that. Because we live in an unjust world, but there is one who is just. And who wants to show you how things were meant to be. And his name is Jesus Christ. So will you call out to God for help? Like the royal official, even when it seems doubtful, he will respond. Will you take that step? Will you go further and trust him enough and put his word into action? Will you actually look at what God says matters? Look at love, look at, at faith, look at mercy, look at kindness, look at justice and say, I want to take a few small steps, do some things that God's way instead of my way and see if they work. Will you allow him to change and come into your life and change you at the root of who you are? Not that you lose your identity, you're still you, but you're the you you were meant to be, not the you that you are. The vision that God had when he made man in his own image is the, is the, the form of, of who he is calling you to be. Whole, unbroken, still problematic in this world but with that fire and that light of hope, with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, guiding you through the turmoil of this world. And then he will take you and use you like he did the royal official as a catalyst for change in the lives of everyone around you and give you the boldness to share what you believe is true because you have found real purpose and real meaning. On the other hand, you can explain to God why your circumstances are so unjust and you can continue to shake your fist at him. You can ignore the evidence that God is putting in your life all the time. If you're here, God is drawing you to himself. He is pulling you in and he is showing you things because he is knocking at the door of your heart. You wouldn't be here if God wasn't doing that. Are you engaging the evidence, honestly, are you like the official saying, hey, what time didn't he get better? What is the reasons for believing this now? God's not afraid of those questions because he's the God of answers. He's the God of truth. Or are you going to continue to just pursue your own comfort, keep your head down, not get involved in the battle, the fight that's happening, the spiritual battle for the souls of men? And just say, you know, just, I just want to work and have a comfortable little home and binge watch Netflix and just let the suffering, just see if I can keep down and avoid any of the big pain. Because you won't. Because you can't. Because none of us can. Will you 
Ignore all of that and live your life for self, despite the fact that God is again and again and again pleading with you to try a different way, the real way to him. Or like the Pharisees, will we pridefully look down our nose at others and pretend as though we've got it all together? And will we fake it until we make it? And put on a, a, a mask of self-sufficiency and of confidence and of spirituality while we ignore the suffering and even judge those who suffer. They must have done something to deserve that. Having a false form of godliness, most of what we know about Christianity in the media is a false form of godliness. That's something that Jesus is showing us in this study. The Pharisees are alive and well. And I'm not saying that every church but Zenos is wrong. I would never say that God is so much bigger than Zenos Christian Fellowship. He's so much bigger than Columbus, Ohio. And there are millions of Christians. But I'm talking about what the world system does and what they put in the media and the picture in your coworkers and your family members' mind of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That is not an accurate picture of who God is. Ran across, I'll close with this. I ran across this quote from Blaise Pascal that seemed to fit so well with what we were talking about here. He said, knowledge of God without knowledge of man's wretchedness leads to pride. Knowledge of man's wretchedness without knowledge of God leads to despair. And knowledge of Jesus Christ in the middle course because by it we discover both God and our wretched state. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying there's three responses. One is, you know God, but you don't know what your problems are. That's the Pharisees. The other is, you know how painful and wretched human life is, but you don't know God. That's the man by the pool. And then there's those who see the reality of who God is and the reality of who they are and come to a humble place and admit that they need God. Why don't I just pray for us? God, thanks for these guys and for their faithfulness, for their stories of your faithfulness and um, the way that you've worked in so many of our lives to set the record straight about who you are Thank you for your patience with us as we struggle with that, as we fail over and over again. But thank you that we are whole, that we are hopeful, that we, uh, we know why we're here, we know where we're going, and um, we just ask God that you'll, you'll really help us to share that, especially as we see our family members, as we are, spend more time with our household over the next few weeks that you'll help us to be incredible ambassadors and that we can bring you home into our families and let people wrestle with the reality of who you are. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.